An acoustic piano typically has three pedals, the soft pedal on the left, the sostenuto pedal in the middle, and the sustain pedal on the right. Those first two allow for some interesting, delicate sounds that most people have no idea about because they're too busy riding the sustain pedal. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about piano played with the soft pedal, piano played with the sostenuto pedal, and, okay, mostly piano played with the sustain pedal. The episode you're about to listen to is entirely made possible by my listeners. I'm so happy to be able to make this show freely available and ad-free to anyone who wants to listen, and that's possible because of my patrons. So if you're digging Strong Songs and you think, hey, you know, I'd pay for this, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs. I am very excited for this episode, it's been a long time coming, a dive into a legendary song by a legendary piano player and one of those songs that I've gotten a ton of requests for over the years. It's a seven and a half minute saga that I can't wait to dig into, so let's pour some wine, break off some garlic bread, and do this thing. songs tell a story one way or another, but some of them are more direct about telling that story than others. Some songs don't just tell one story, they tell multiple stories. Stories within stories, each with a beginning, a middle, and an end, each taking you somewhere new as the chords and melodies unfold and time moves backward and forward and backward and forward again. A good story needs a good setting, not just for the story itself, but for the telling. And what better place to tell a story than around a table? The red and white squares on the tablecloth, fresh napkins sculpted like peacock feathers through burnished wooden holders, low lights and spice on the air, escaping each time the nearby kitchen door swings open. A good story needs a table, some food, and some wine, and you know, the wine, it's just such an important choice. There are so many options, which should we choose? A bottle of red bottle of whites It all depends upon your appetite <laughs> I'll meet you anytime you want in our Italian restaurant So meet me in our Italian restaurant where a Billy Joel classic is on the menu Billy Joel's 1977 song, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, is in some ways more than just a song. It really is a story, a saga spanning almost eight minutes of music in a variety of styles and tempos, contrasting aching nostalgia with bracing realism, schmaltzy saxes with raw rock rhythms. It's a five-course musical meal, and I can't wait to dig in. Things are okay with me these days. Got a good job, I got a good office. I got a new wife, got a new life, and the family is fun. Long ago, you lost weight. I 
Released in 1977, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant closes out the A-side of Billy Joel's fifth studio album, The Stranger. That's not a placement that's usually reserved for an album's singles, and indeed, Italian Restaurant wasn't released as a single, despite the fact that it went on to have an enduring legacy beyond the album. And that's because, uh, because The Stranger is a completely ridiculous album. I know some of you are, well, probably all of you are familiar with Billy Joel, but you may not have listened to all of his albums, and especially not his earlier stuff from the 1970s. If you're going to listen to one album, Album, though, you should listen to The Stranger because The Stranger is ridiculous. It's loaded with amazing songs, and Scenes from an Italian Restaurant is really just one of them. It's the centerpiece for me. It's kind of the bohemian rhapsody of the album, but the album is just really spectacular. Like, you may not have listened to The Stranger all the way through, but I bet you know some songs from it. It kicks off with Moving Out. And it seems such a waste of time If that's what it's all about if that's moving up, then I'm moving out. Then it changes gears to Just the Way You Are, which is one of Joel's biggest radio hits. I said I love you. That's forever. This I promise from the heart. I couldn't love you any better I love you just the way you are It also happens to feature a solo from jazz saxophone legend Phil Woods. <laughs> Go ahead, Phil. Other great songs on this album include Vienna. You're gonna kick off before you even get halfway through Ooh, and will you realize Vienna waits for you Only the good die young So come on Virginia show me a sign Send up a signal I'll throw you the line Stained glass curtain you're hiding behind Never lets in the sun Darling, only the good die And she's always a woman. And she'll take what you give her as long as it's free. Yeah, she steals like a thief, but she's always a woman to me. The Stranger is just one of those albums, like Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, when you listen to it, it just feels like you're listening to a Greatest Hits album. And I guess you kind of are, in a way. I mean, it's a lot of the greatest hits of Billy Joel. So, in the midst of all of those great songs sits this seven and a half minute, 700 pound gorilla of a story song, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, and it's so conceptually big and ambitious that it stands apart from all the other really strong songs on this album, and it elevates The Stranger to be even more than a collection of great songs. Songs. It's the story that ties the whole album together. Brenda and Eddie were the popular steadies and the king and the queen of the farm. Riding around with the car top down and the radio on. 
Scenes from an Italian Restaurant was written, of course, by Billy Joel. It features Joel on piano and vocals, along with Doug Stegmeier on bass, Liberty DeVito on drums, and multi-instrumentalist Richie Cannata on the tenor saxophone and clarinet, along with Huma Kraken on acoustic guitar, Steve Berg on electric guitar, and Dominic Cortese on the accordion. The Stranger was produced by Phil Ramone, and while all the musicians were very important, Phil Ramone played a crucial role in why this album sounds the way that it does. As Joel tells it, before The Stranger came out, his record label was not happy with his sales, and they just weren't happy with him. They were thinking about dropping him, and he'd always worked with studio musicians on his previous albums, as opposed to the live band that he would then take on the road, because usually studio musicians are kind of in the studio, they're more expensive, and you kind of have two separate worlds. That's a sort of a common thing for some musicians, especially songwriters like Joel, uh, you'd go on the road with one band and you'd record in the studio with another band. But this time around, Joel really wanted to work with his live band, DeVito, Stegmeier, and Kanata. He's like, liked the chemistry that they had, um, he liked performing with them, and he wanted to get that live energy, which, especially these days, I mean, a lot of bands will just record live in the studio and you really capture that energy. It seems kind of like a no-brainer, but at the time, it was a little bit more of a, of a strange ask. So some producers that he could have worked with wanted him to hire studio musicians, and he was not feeling that, and he didn't really think that they understood what he was going for. Billy Joel actually recounts this story himself as part of a short interview that he does in the Complete Albums collection of The Stranger from 2011. When I was, when I was trying to record The Stranger, it was 1977, I had written a bunch of material I had a good, solid band at the time. I actually met with the producer of the Beatles, George Martin, and had asked him if he, would, he was interested in producing me, but he didn't want to use my band. And I said, I have to use my band. So I didn't use the Beatles producer. And I met Phil Ramone, who uh, I knew from being an engineer on a lot of other people's recordings, uh, Paul Simon, he had done, he had done all kinds of live recordings with, with other artists. And I met with Phil, he got it immediately. He saw us play at Carnegie Hall early in 77 and said, I love your band, I love what you're doing, I love the energy, I want to produce the, the album. Uh, and it was a good move because he got it. And uh, we had a blast making it. We had a really good time making it. Um, and it ended up being a, a, the breakthrough album. There was four hit singles off of this album. The whole album has this rough energy to it, the kind of collective sound that can really only grow when a band hones it by touring and performing together. It also helps that DeVito, Stegmeier, and Kanata are all killing musicians. You can sense that they're just kind of on the same page. They just have something that sort of goes beyond words. I can't even really articulate it. But if you listen to the album, you'll hear what I'm talking about. And it was up to Phil Ramone, the producer, to capture that energy. I recently talked with producer Brian Bender on a bonus episode of the show. Um, I hope you'll check it out. It was a really fun episode. And he talked some about what a producer does, and the way that he talked about it, it really helped me understand what a producer does and all the subtle things that Ramon probably had to do to influence the recording of The Stranger. What he did goes so far beyond like how he mic'd the kick drum, how he mixed the saxophone, or what kind of reverb he used. It's about everything, all the subtle work where you build a space in which people can be creative. The Stranger's Back Jacket is a photo of five guys taken, of course, at an Italian restaurant. Billy Joel's there with his three band members, and so's Phil Ramone, smiling in a Yankees jersey like the fifth member of the band. A bottle of white, a bottle of red, perhaps a bottle of rosé instead. 
So if you've never heard this song all the way through, I do recommend listening to it before you listen to this episode. So just go listen to it and then come back to this episode because it is helpful to have a sense of the roadmap. But um, just to give it to you because that is helpful to have. We start off in piano ballad territory like you just heard. The narrator greets his unnamed longtime friend at their Italian restaurant and they pick out wine for their meal. They're sort of getting settled into their seats. Get a table near the street In our old familiar place You and I face to face Then the tempo picks up as the dinner is sort of underway and the narrator begins reminiscing about all the good times they had together in their youth. Things are okay with me these days. Got a good job, I got a good office. I got a new wife, got a new life, and the family is fine. A bit into that new groove, the narrator recalls listening to songs about New Orleans on the jukebox and the band transitions into a trad jazz style jam. Cold beer, hot lights, my sweet romantic teenage nights. Then in the fourth section, things really take off. We enter the meaty middle part of the song. Billy Joel refers to this as the ballad of Brenda and Eddie. So it's kind of shifted again, and the narrator is still talking, but the narrator is telling a story about a young couple from the same hometown as the two people who are presumably eating dinner. It's not clear it could be Brenda and Eddie who are actually at the Italian restaurant, but the narrator and the person the narrator is talking to are sort of ambiguous throughout this. But this is the story of Brenda and Eddie, a young couple who seemed to have it all, but got married too young. Brenda and Eddie were the popular steadies and the king and the queen of the farm. Riding around with the car top down and the radio on. Nobody looked any finer. Always more of a hit at the parkway diner. And then the song closes out. It kind of transitions back to the present, back to the very intro groove, to those nostalgic tones of the piano, closing the story back out around the table where it began. Bottle of red, bottle of white. Whatever kind of mood you're in tonight. And that's the roadmap. You can think of it as a story that goes three layers deep, or you can think of it as a five course meal. Just think of it as those kind of segments all arranged back to back. So let's get into it, starting with that intro as we walk into the restaurant and see our old friend Billy sitting at our table in the back. A bottle of white, a bottle of red, perhaps a bottle of rose instead. Get a table near the street in our old familiar place, you and I. So we're in the key of F here, and I really love the contours of this verse. It's just this big, relaxing thing. Joel is playing these nice chords on piano, accompanied by Cortese's crucial accordion. Uh, Joel starts moving up. He starts on F major, then he goes up to G minor 7, then he goes up to C, the 5 chord, and he kind of does a quick 4 to 1 resolution. It's a really straightforward chord progression. His melody is super simple too, it works in a similarly straightforward way, it's just that slow upward trajectory, a bottle of white, a bottle of red, perhaps a bottle of rosé instead. Straightforward, solid stuff. A bottle of white, a bottle of red, perhaps a bottle of rosé instead. Now his next phrase becomes more complex. 
at a table near the street in our old familiar place you and i face to face so if that first phrase sort of slowly climbed up, the second phrase is a kind of an inversion. It floats up top and then moves back down through an increasingly busy chord progression, chord inversions moving back and forth between the one, the four, and the five. So I've talked about chord inversions many times on the show at this point. That's when you take a chord and you put the notes in a different order. You kind of stack them differently instead of playing an F major chord, F, A, C, which would be called root position because the root F is in the bottom. You might play it A, C, F. That's called first inversion, and it puts the third in the bottom. One reason to use inversions in this kind of writing is to do what I call a walk up or a walk down. It lets you keep your bass note in your left hand kind of moving on a steady scale up or down without having to jump around the way that it might if you just played all of the chords in root position. And that's something that Billy Joel really likes to do. A lot of piano players like to do it. It's a common piano-y kind of songwriting thing. It's related to a broader harmonic concept called voice leading, which basically just means that as chords move from one to the next in a chord progression, each note in the chord moves to the nearest tone in the next chord, which keeps the whole progression kind of knitted together in one space, rather than kind of loping around, rebuilding each chord in the same shape, starting on different notes. So it does so much more complex and fast-moving stuff with inversions later in the song, which makes this one at the beginning actually a good one to isolate, just to kind of explain the concept. He goes in the middle of the phrase here, he goes from a C major, then he goes down to a B flat major, those are both in root position, and then he ends on F with an A in the root, which is an F in first inversion. That lets his bass line do this nice walk down from C to B flat to A, rather than going to F on that final on that final chord, if, which it would do if it was in root position. So I'm sure I'll mention inversions and walk ups and walk downs as we go, but that's like a very basic example here at the beginning of the song of what I'm talking about. So listen again to that opening couple of phrases and pay attention to the bass note in his left hand, to the kind of contour of the line that moves along with the melody. I'll play along with just that bass note on piano and listen for how it moves in a series of arcs. It moves up and then down and then up again. Just a series of little hills here at the beginning of the song. A bottle of white A bottle of red Perhaps a bottle of rosé Get a table near the street in our old familiar place. You and I face. Now, on the second half of the verse, things get much more complex. A bottle of red, a bottle of white. It all depends upon your right. The acoustic guitar and bass are in, and the harmony is also different. Meet you anytime you want in our Italian restaurant. Um, so the opening verse is actually through composed. That means that it doesn't repeat chord progressions or sections. It is actually different the whole way through. That second half that you just heard has some new stuff going on, even though it kind of follows the contours of the first time through. So obviously Hugh McCracken is coming on acoustic guitar. He's It's really EQ'd pretty high, so it's pretty bright. You can really hear the attack on his guitar. And Doug Stegmeier has come in on the electric bass. 
Harmonically, the chords are similar here, but there's an F pedal going during the first half of this second phrase, so it gives it a pretty different energy. Um, it moves up, like the chords are still moving up, you know, F major to G minor, you know, up to C, but there's an F pedal going the whole time, so instead of that subtle upward motion, the second phrase is a little more dramatic and a little more static. The chords move up, but the bass stays put. A bottle of red bottle of whites It all depends upon your appetite now, right there, that chord you just heard, in the second half of the phrase, they actually introduce a new sound, a new chord. Instead of going to C like they did the first time, they go to a G7 chord. That's a 2-7 chord in F major. That's a very different, much brighter sound than the 5 chord they went to the first time. I love it when songwriters do stuff like that. They do two very similar phrases, but they introduce a different chord in the second phrase. It's a kind of an old-fashioned thing to do. I really like how it sounds. Check out the difference, though. Here's the first phrase leading to that C major chord. Get a table near the street. And here it is the second time leading to a G7. I'll meet you anytime you want to. It's nice, right? It's also very different. It's it's brighter and higher up. It opens Joel up to sing a higher and more intense version of the same melody he sang the first time when he sang Get a Table Near the Street. Get a table near the street. He's kind of lower there, and that's just logistics. Where are we going to sit? The second time, he sings, I'll meet you anytime you want, and it's a much more personal thing to say. So it makes sense that he sings it up higher on that brighter, more intense G7 chord. I'll meet you anytime you want in our Italian restaurant. It also lets Stegmeier do this huge bass walk-up. He starts on that G, and then he just walks up note to note, straight up a scale all the way up to an F up the octave. Using inversions, it goes from a G7 to A minor to G over B, then C in reposition, then B flat over D, then C over E, and finally F. Listen for it. I'll meet you anytime you want in our Italian and from there, the strings set up a dramatic shift to the next section of the song, led by Richie Cannata's sultry saxophone. So Kanata was Billy Joel's longtime multi-instrumental horn guy, and Italian Restaurant really features the breadth of his skill. He's awesome. He adds so much to Billy Joel's band, and he adds so much to this recording. This is his first entrance, but as you'll see, he has three different solos on this song on two separate instruments, and he also employs several different saxophone styles on his multiple saxophone solos that he plays on this song, and people wonder why I like this song. So here at the beginning, he's in full smooth schmaltz mode. This is a very schmaltz and smooth saxophone solo. He's playing the tenor saxophone here, and he's just leaning into that style so beautifully. I've learned all of his solos from this track, and it's just been a really fun thing to do. So 
So obviously we moved to a new harmonic place here. The harmony has shifted to major seventh chords. I've talked about major seventh chords many, many times on the show, all the way back to the episode about ABBA's Dancing Queen. But a major seventh chord just adds the seventh in addition to the one, the three, and the five. It makes for a more lush, full sound. And here we're going just between major seventh chords. It starts on a C major seventh chord, then it goes to an F major seventh chord, and then resolves to a B flat major seven chord. It goes between that chord progression a couple of times, and then it changes. It goes up to an A flat major 7 chord to an E flat major 7 chord back to A flat major 7th. It all gives this part of the song a feeling of transition. This is definitely a transition between sections of the song and if I'm picturing it also as a meal between two friends which this song is sort of structured, you know, as a meal between two friends, this is when they're putting in their order, they're maybe having some wine, catching up on what's new, making small talk. It's lovely, it's very relaxed, it's that first part of the meal. So give this section Richie Cannata's saxophone solo another listen and just pay attention for how the harmony shifts from C major, from that sort of initial zone around C major, B flat major 7, up to A flat major 7th, to E flat major 7th, and how this feeling of relaxed melody just flows from one chord to the next to the next. Here comes the A flat major seven. <laughs> and with both friends loosened up and the small talk out of the way, it's time to get into it. Who's okay with me these days? I got a good job, I got a good office, I got a new wife. And the family is fine Oh, lost touch long ago You lost weight, I did not know You remember I looked so nice after so much time You remember those days Alright, so now we are cooking. This is the first of several dramatic transitions in the song. I gotta say that I love it when a song does this kind of transition. It's not that common of a thing. It only happens in songs that are doing this kind of dramatic, you know, multi-layered approach. I mentioned Bohemian Rhapsody before. If you haven't listened to it, I did do an episode on that song back in year one. And that song comes to mind just because it does something similar. It's different. You know, there are different songs. It's much more dramatic. Um, and it's a Queen song, so it sounds, you know, more of, more of Queen style. But they're doing something similar by shifting tempos. They start slow, then they pick up. There's a whole middle section. It, like, has the same kind of theatrical, uh, very dramatic energy. And I really just love songs like that. And it does feel worth noting that A Night at the Opera, the Queen album that featured Bohemian Rhapsody, came out just a couple of years before The Stranger in 1975. So I have no idea if Billy Joel had actually listened to Freddie's song and taken inspiration from it or anything like that. I've never seen him mention Bohemian Rhapsody. But at the very least, Queen had demonstrated some of what was possible by writing a song that shifts between a number of different styles and energies in the way that both of these songs do. So Kanata's tenor saxophone solo is a transition, as I mentioned, and there's this big build at the end of that solo. And what they're building is, you know, they're building the dynamics, they're getting louder, but they're also setting up a harmonic change. The song is changing into the key of G. It's in the key of F during the first verse, and it goes into the key of G, and it stays there for these middle parts of the song. So after it goes up to what you're hearing right now, the E flat to A flat, then they transition from E flat, then they go down to D sus, and sit there on this D chord, which is the five of G, setting up the new groove and the new section. You're okay with me these days Got a good job, I got a good office I got a new wife, got a new life And the family is 
So the thing that makes this transition really pop, just really grab you and grab your attention, is the groove that they go into after the transition, specifically those stop time hits. It's all about those stop time hits, steady quarter notes, or I guess eighth notes, depending on how you're subdividing it in the piano, and just bzz, bzz in the rhythm section. It's super good. Things are okay with me these days. Got a good job, I got a good office, I got a new wife, got a new life, and the family is so it's not complicated, it's just three instruments plus Joel's vocals, but because they change the groove up and they use those coordinated hits in the bass and the drums, it feels really exciting. It feels like there's a whole lot going on. It's really good small rock group arranging using this kind of thing, like this kind of technique, to get that excitement and that variety. This is just a classic example of that. So DeVito on the drums, he's just doing a really simple hit, kick, snare, and hi-hat all at once, kind of the thump, the pop, and the sizzle all happening at once. Stegmaier on bass is matching his rhythms. He's playing bass parts that move through the chord progression. And on piano, Joel is banging out steady quarter notes through this chord progression. He's voice leading pretty closely through the chords. It goes from G to kind of D over A to D minor over A to this sort of C9 thing, C over G, F7, and then sus kind of back around to G. So he's keeping it pretty close. That's in contrast to what Kanata is playing on the bass. The bass is jumping in fourths and octaves. There's more vertical motion in the bass part, which provides a nice contrast between the bass and the piano. So here's my full recreation of what the rhythm section is playing during this new section. And just listen for all that. Pay attention for the bass and how that's moving a little bit more vertically than the piano. And just listen to how it all kind of gels together. So I mentioned stop time, and stop time is kind of defined by what it's in contrast to. So stop time is when the rhythm section engages in coordinated hits that stop the time. And the thing that makes it so exciting is that the time is inevitably going to come back in again. The groove is going to drop, so the stop time is kind of inherently tense. The bottom drops out of the groove, but the time, the kind of tempo, keeps coasting along. And so when the groove crashes back down, it's this moment of catharsis. Here that happens is this great drum fill by DeVito, and he just sets up that solid groove, this kind of bouncing two-beat groove that they come into at the new tempo. At which point Richie Kanata switches to a new instrument. <laughs> He's gone from tenor saxophone to clarinet. And yes, obviously I had to learn his clarinet parts. has a kind of a New Orleans bounce to it, so it makes sense that Kanata would switch to a more trad jazz instrument, the clarinet. We're also temporarily back in the key of F. This second section, when the groove comes in, moves down a step back to F. Like I mentioned, this song swings back and forth between the key of F and the key of G. That stop time section is in G, but then for this second section, they move to F, and it kind of feels less like they're going back to the home key and actually more like they're going to a sort of a bridge. So this groovy section, it's really just three chords. It goes from E flat major, to B flat major, to F, and then they just vamp over and over again. And Joel and Kanata are doing this classic call and response sort of thing. Billy Joel will sing his line, you remember those days hanging out and then Kanata will answer. The engineer 
And after Joel's specific New Orleans reference in the lyrics, the tuba and trombone come in and really pour on the gumbo. So I love this section. I think it's a lot of fun, especially if you're listening to the lyrics. The speaker is reminiscing back to when they were teens hanging out in the village green. They were so cool. And if you caught it, the lyric he sang is, drop a dime in the box, play a song about New Orleans. And as he says that, the music enacts what's happening in the restaurant. Like someone has dropped a dime in the jukebox, the groove shifts, and the tuba and trombone come in, and suddenly we're in this New Orleans-style groove, like it's playing on a jukebox in the restaurant. It's a bit more subtle than that, though, because there's a sort of a temporal shift that's happening here, too. The narrator is reminiscing about their shared youth, right? And they're talking about a memory. He's talking about a memory of playing New Orleans songs on the jukebox. So the music that begins playing is remembered music. It's not playing in the restaurant in the present day. It's actually a memory of the music from the past. It's making its way into the present. And that makes this all the more of a transition between this section and the next one, which is much more firmly rooted in the past. So it's kind of like a cross. Crossfade, the reminiscence is taking over, the past is becoming the present, and the music is the thing that's taking us there. That's Kanata on the clarinet, and for the life of me, I can't find a credit for the trombone and tuba players. It's not in the vinyl jacket. It's kind of not anywhere, but they're in there. The tuba is playing steady downbeats along with the bass, and the trombone is improvising counter melodies along with Kanata's clarinet. DeVito's drum groove has also changed. He's opened up the hi-hat on the upbeats. It turns an already bouncy beat into, like, just a room full of basketballs. We're back in the key of G here, and it's a pretty classic chord progression that I'm pretty sure I've talked about once or twice on the show. Um, it's a way of getting from the one chord, which in this case is G, to the four chord, which in this case is C. It's a really common thing to do. It involves walking down through the seventh and then resolving to the third. So you start on a G major chord, just G, B, D, G, with a G up on top. Then you go to a G major seventh chord, so that G on top becomes an F sharp, major seventh. Then you go to a G dominant seventh chord, so the F sharp becomes an F natural, the dominant seventh, and then you resolve that F natural to E, which is the third in C major. So it goes G, G major seven, G dominant seven, C major. You've heard it a million times in a million different songs. They're using it here to actually like evoke a kind of a classic sound, you know, this classic New Orleans inspired sound. Um, so it's this it's this very almost cliched chord progression that serves a specific purpose in the song. It's also a slightly modified version of the chord progression that Joel played at the beginning of this section during the stop time. Uh, during that stop time sequence, he's playing a kind of G to D. The chords are slightly different, but he's he's echoing that here just with a really different groove and a kind of a different intent. So when Richie Kanata is soloing, you can actually hear him outline the voice leading there when he goes from the G to the F sharp to the F and then down to the E. He plays it right there in his solo, and it's not the last time that he'll really expertly outline the chord progression in a way that's really exciting. And with that, it's time for yet another transition. 
So now we get to it, the ballad of Brenda and Eddie, the most exciting part of this song. But leading into that transition, there's this little thing that I want to highlight because it's one of my favorite little touches in this recording. So the band is kind of pedaling on this D chord and they're setting up this break, you know, into Billy Joel's solo low piano thing where he, he rocks those octave Gs. But before that happens, Kanata goes into this playful little clarinet line where he kind of snakes his way up a D chord. But in only this part of the song, he overdubs himself on a second clarinet part. He plays the same line, but down a third, which gives it this super fun, funny, kind of harmonized third eve movement. It's just amazing sounding. It's so good. Listen to it in the recording and see if you can pick out both of those clarinet parts. They're pretty close, but you can hear that there's more than one clarinet playing, especially uh, toward the end of the line. I love it so much. It's such a great transition, and it goes to show sometimes one clarinet isn't enough. Sometimes you need two clarinets to get the job done. But enough clarinets. It's time to rock. band kicks things up another 10 clicks, the fastest tempo that they'll hit in this song, and Billy Joel prepares to deliver a lot of lyrics very quickly. Brenda and Eddie were the popular steadies and the king and the queen of the farm. Riding around with the car top down and the radio on. Scenes from an Italian restaurant may have been too long for radio play, so it couldn't be a single, but you can probably already see why it's become such an enduring part of Billy Joel's live show. I've never seen him live, but this song must absolutely kill live just because it's so dramatic. It's so well made for a live show. There's these stop time sections, these piano solos, tempo increases. The sorts of things are just like tailor-made for a live show. They'll get a crowd going. There's so much energy. You can imagine it, right? Like the way that the stage lights probably flash with those rhythm section hits, a spotlight coming down on Billy Joel for the solo piano as he kind of takes away this section. And everyone knows this song they're so excited for the ballad of Brenda and Eddie so when it cuts to Billy Joel solo on the piano down there jumping those low G's and octaves people must absolutely lose their minds I've talked a lot about the percussive nature of the piano in the past, how the instrument really is a percussive, like a hammer-based instrument. Billy Joel definitely understands that he gets the power specifically of the piano low register. Those low notes on a piano, they sound incredible when you really go at them the way that he does. And it's easy for that to get lost, you know, if you've got the bass in and the drums in, so it's very smart for him to go solo. That's a common trick. It's kind of a tradition that he's carrying on from the great Little Richard. It's one that's carried on after Billy Joel with future songwriters. This breakdown in Italian restaurant actually always makes me think of the breakdown in Ben Folds' 2005 tune, One Angry Dwarf and 200 Solemn Faces. Very similar energy. You'll be sorry one day, yes you will. 
Yes, yes, don't worry. We'll definitely talk about a Ben Fold song at some point on this show. It's actually really fun to listen to him talk about songwriting. He's a really thoughtful guy. I'm sure he has a lot of thoughts about Billy Joel since he's so the sort of next generation torchbearer of that kind of piano pop rock music. And it'd be fun to ask him about that. But anyways, Billy Joel kicks off this section of the song. He's on solo piano. He's ripping out some fast licks down the keys on his right hand. The chord progression is pretty simple. It's just moving from G, then down to F, then down to C over E, and down to D. So again, he's using chord inversions to go from G to F to E to D in the left hand. So there's that kind of steady walk down, even though that's a C chord, that second to last chord is a C chord. So soon the rhythm section comes in. They're at a faster tempo. Like I said, they've gone 10 clicks even faster. So the energy is just totally off the charts by the time the drums and bass come in. Brenda Renetti were the popular steadies and the king and the queen of the bomb. Riding around with the car top down and the radio on. Nobody looks any finer. Always more of a hit at the Parkway Diner. We never knew we could want more than that. So the word pulse is really key here. The pulse is really the thing. And when I say it, I mean pulse. I've talked about this in the past. I think it might have been on a Patreon bonus Q&A. But I've talked about how the human heart is really kind of the center of how humans feel rhythm. It's sort of the rhythmic center of all music since it's our rhythmic core just on a physiological level. There's this pumping drum in the middle of all of our bodies keeping time with the rhythm of our lives. Like it sounds cheesy, but it's right there at the heart. There's just this thing, kagong, 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 going at all times. So it makes sense that kind of all rhythm stems from that. So when I say there's a pulse on this part of the song, I mean it. We're at almost 200 beats per minute here. That's super fast. And DeVito and Stegmaier are just this quickened heartbeat. DeVito's kick drum is this just boom, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. And Stegmaier's matching him. I love Stegmaier's bass playing on this part. It's just boom, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. Like he's just constantly doing a boom, ba-boom, ba-boom, really fast here at 200 clicks per minute. He plays some really cool bass lines later. Doug Stegmaier is just a really crucial part of why this section works. Joel's piano is kind of just mashing away there, kind of on top of that pulse. So even without the vocals, it's just, it's really a pulse pounding groove. this is just my little recreation, but I can't come close to matching that gritty live energy that they've got. That's the thing that Joel and Phil Ramone managed to capture in the studio, that crackling live energy of the live band. So this is the story of Brenda and Eddie, stars of the high school scene. They had a teenage wedding and the old folks wished them well. No, wait, that's Pierre and the Mademoiselle. Brenda and Eddie, they were two American kids doing the best that they can. Sucking on chili dog, outside taste freeze. Diane sitting on Jackie's lap, got his hands between the knees. No, wait, wait, no, that's Jack and Diane. I do know, though, that Brenda and Eddie, I mean, mm, tramps like them, they were definitely born to run. Oh, no, wait, that's Bruce and Wendy. <laughs> okay, okay, so it's kind of a familiar trope in rock music. Though, like Bohemian Rhapsody, Springsteen's Born to Run is another 1975 rock epic that provides some good musical context for what Billy Joel would do a couple of years later in scenes from an Italian restaurant. 
Brenda and Eddie do stand on their own, if for no other reason than because their story is kind of a downer. They're the two popular steadies, they were the it couple, and they get married and then they're slowly torn apart by the tough realities of life. Brenda and Eddie were still going steady in the summer of 75. When they decided the marriage would be at the end of July. Everyone said they were crazy. Brenda, you know that you're much too lazy and Eddie could never afford to live that. So the section where Joel is singing really cooks through this chord progression. It's all centered around a G. It's a lot of G, D, and C. The one, the five, and the four, the three big chords of rock and roll. I really love that figure that they all play together, the hits that they do when they go up to the D and then they do this hit. It's like D, C, and uh, the whole band kind of does it together. Uh, DeVito's up on the crash cymbal there. And it's just a really nice hit. You can kind of imagine the lights flashing, you know, when they do this live, just to kind of go back to what a good live song this probably is. Still going steady in the summer of 75 When they decided the marriage would be at the end of July The second part of the phrase has another classic inversion. There's a really great use of an inversion. It goes from a G chord up to a G7 over B, which then leads to C. So that's some more voice leading. So that's a really classic way to get from G up to C. It's just a killer way to get to C. You can hear Segmeyer kind of walk up on the second half of the phrase. Listen for it and I'll play along. When they decided the marriage would be And then here to end out the phrase, they do a really cool extended walk up. So that final phrase starts by walking down. It goes from G to F to an E7, an E dominant chord. But then there's this extended walk up. It goes up from E up to A minor to G over B to C to D and then to G. And Stegmaier, the whole time on bass, he starts really pulling and doing these kind of octave jumps where the bass line gets really busy and it adds so much to the overall feel of the song. From there, it's time to take this groove into the B section. Well, they got an apartment with deep park compass and a couple of paintings from Sears. A big waterbed that they bought with the bread they saved for a couple of years. They started to fight when the money got tight and they just didn't count on the tears. This B section makes great use of a sus chord, which a sus chord is when you take a regular chord, one, three, five, and you replace the third, either with the fourth or the second. You're suspending the fourth, you know, um, where the third normally would be. Here they're in C, and the whole opening gambit here is just like a C sus chord that then resolves to C major, then goes back to C sus, then back to C major, and then eventually they go to D, and then back to G. So it's a very sus chord-centric sound. You may also have noticed that they're using vocal harmony here. The Ballad of Brenda Nettie is where vocal harmony kind of is introduced to this song. There was a little bit before when Joel was singing those, whoa, whoa, he's kind of harmonizing above himself, but it's super noticeable here. It's part of why it feels so overheated and exciting. I'm pretty sure that that's just Joel overdubbing himself. He's just singing a higher harmony part there, which adds just a nice extra layer to the vocals, a nice feeling of motion and contrast. It's very exciting, you know, just kind of, a big water bed that they bought with the bread they had saved for a couple of years. And once a band is already cooking like this, it's probably time for a big old rock and roll sax solo.
It's such an awesome sax solo. They're going for a pastiche here. This is just, it's kind of supposed to be kind of pastiche. And Richie Cannata is throwing so many classic tenor sax, rock sax licks. These are all the licks that everybody learns if they're ever going to play in a cover band, if they're ever going to play any rock and roll music. Because back in the day, this was the job of the saxophone player. I mean, Clarence Clemens and the E Street Band is kind of the classic, but Richie Cannata is another great example of just when the band gets going and it's it's just about to explode, the only thing that's left to do is to have the saxophone player just come roaring in and just rock out for 16 bars. I mean, when Billy Joel yells rock and roll at the start of this solo, it somehow doesn't sound ironic. I mean, all I want, really, as a saxophonist, all I want in life is for a band leader to one day yell rock and roll with that level of intensity right before I rip into a solo. It's kind of all any saxophone player can really can really ask for. Um, so Kanata here is doing a lot of classic stuff. He's doing the tenor sax growl, which is when you go kind of like into the horn while you're playing, and it gives you this really roaring sound. Um, you kind of sound more like a human voice. Check it out here. I'll just like play a little riff. This is without growling. And here's the same riff with the growl. That's how you get that harsh, roaring sound on saxophone. You actually use your voice to do it. That's one of the reasons the saxophone rules is because it's such a human sound, and rock and roll saxophone in particular is so human because you're actually putting a lot of your own voice into the instrument. I mentioned before when he played that clarinet riff that matched the voice leading of the band that he would do it again, and he does it really, it's really cool what he does here. Um, during that big walk-up at the end of the phrase, he matches with the voice leading of the rest of the band. He plays this great little riff that climbs up with the rest of them. And then, I mean, he just does it all. He does the side key trills up the horn. He does that rock arpeggio popping up to an altissimo note. It's a perfect rock sax solo. It's so great. I love it so much. So with that, they go back to the B section. For a while in a very nice style, but it's always the same in the end. They got a divorce as a matter of course, and they parted the closest of friends. So the chords here are the same as the first time they did it, but they've added these really cool uh, figures in the rhythm section. They're kind of changeable. The first one is bum ba bum ba bum and the second one goes over the bar line bum ba bum 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 ba bum It's a great figure, especially because Joel and his overdubbed harmony part are just singing ba 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 da ba ba da ba ba da ba like he's just holding those steady notes on top while those figures move around underneath. This is the climax of the song. This is actually the peak of the energy of the song, and it's great. I mean, it works super well, and it's all Again, it's that stop time thing. The fact that the groove kind of drops out and the rhythm section starts playing these dramatic hits together, that's everything. I mean, that's what makes this whole thing work. Well, 
the song may have peaked, but Brenda Nettie's story isn't quite over. This final verse is sort of a coda. It's a conclusion for the two characters as they fall apart and realize that for all life's highs and lows, he can't go home again. And then they tag the walk up here and repeat it. So good. They're really just coasting here, enjoying this groove, this faster tempo. Piano riffs on top, lead and backup vocals harmonizing underneath as the band builds toward one final grandiose transition. What a good key change. So that final riff, those descending notes, that's actually a key change from the key of G back to the key of F, uh, the key from the beginning of the song. The first six notes are in the key of G. It descends down and there's a B natural in there. But then the second six notes, it's in the key of F. The B natural becomes a B flat in the key of F. And that's leading us back down to F, to the key of the opening verse. As the past rushes back to the present, we're back in the Italian restaurant and we reprise the harmony from the beginning of the song. I mean, come on! It's one of the grandest musical homecomings I've ever heard. And just like that, carried by Joel's piano and Dominic Cortese's gently keyed accordion, we're set back at the table, back from our remembrance, and back where we belong in the present. Bottle red. And so ends the story within a story. Two old friends in a beloved place, trading tales of times long since past. The glasses are empty, a shared dessert plate is picked clean, and it's time for the check. Time to say goodbye to this place, to that time, and for now, to one of pop music's great storytellers, and to one of storytelling's great songs. That'll do it for my analysis of Billy Joel's Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. I hope this episode has given you a new appreciation for the song. Working on it has definitely done that for me. Thanks so much, as always, for listening to Strong Songs. It's nice to be back for my semi-break in July, though I hope you liked those interview episodes that I ran in July. And being back making the show has really underlined just how much I love doing this. So thanks for listening, and thanks so much to all of my patrons. If you want to support me making this show, do go over to patreon.com slash strongsongs, and you can join all the patrons of the show and get some increasing Patreon rewards. I'm actually adding some more exclusive stuff that you can get uh, in the near future for being a patron of the show. So, patreon.com slash strongsongs to find out more about that. But you don't have to become a patron, of course. I know not everybody can, and there's a lot of other ways you can help out. You can spread the word. Lots of people tell other people about the show. That's really how I find new listeners. You can leave a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, but really anywhere if you like the show. But really, it's just cool that you're listening. It means a lot to me to be able to share music and music appreciation with so many 
people. I can't ever really get my head around the scope of, you know, how many people listen to this show, but it's it's a really amazing thing in my life to just know that so many people listen to me talk about music. So if you'd like to write in, by all means, listeners at strongsongspodcast.com is the way to get in touch. You can send Q&A questions. I'm always collecting more of those, but also just music recommendations, really whatever else. I've learned about so much cool music from listeners over in the Strong Songs Discord, but also just via email. So again, that's listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. Feel free to reach out. Felt like we had to have a saxophone outro solo for this episode, so stick around to hear Steve Pardo bringing us home, and I'll see you in two weeks with more Strong Songs. Strong Songs.